The other thing I want to share with you this morning is we are, uh, in theory, covering Isaiah 41 to 50. And uh, once again, I was having a great deal of difficulty in distilling this down to the flyover overview. And uh, I, I soon came to the realization there's just too much going on in these ten chapters to uh, treat them lightly. I, I can't do it. And part of my frustration was I was uh, trying to condense it, and uh, there are too many different themes that are revolving around. So, uh, we're going to be spending a few weeks on these ten chapters, and this morning uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 45, and one of the verses that uh, has intrigued me for many, many years and uh, is a verse that has uh, been popular uh, in uh, intercessory prayer ministries uh, through at least all of the uh, 20th century, uh, beginning with that revival time in the turn of the last century, uh, is Isaiah 45:11, And um, I've given you a study guide this morning. Uh, we... We had all kind of problems on Thursday with our equipment, and I had all kind of problems with my equipment. So this is uh, sort of bare bones. But um, I want you to look at the, the verses just for a moment from the different translations about Isaiah 45.11. The King James says, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, And concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. The New Living Translation says, Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? You see the contrast there? It's virtually opposite. The New International Version translates it, Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands. And then the New American Standard Version says, As for me, about the things to come concerning my sons. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons. That should have a K after that first word. And you shall commit to me the work of my hands. How many of you are familiar with some of the writings and background of this verse, Isaiah 45, 11? Can I just see your hand? I want to know if I'm speaking into a vacuum this morning. <laughs> okay, well, you, uh, most of you don't have a particular view because uh, you're, you're not familiar with the background on this. Let me give you some of the background. About the turn of the last century, 1904 was the official um, year of the revival, but in truth, it began a little before that, and it lasted uh, quite a bit longer than that. The Christian and Missionary Alliance was already underway under the leadership of uh, Albert uh, Benjamin Simpson, And uh, the Christian Alliance uh, and the Missionary Alliance had already formed. 
Uh, some other groups were beginning to take shape, and in uh, 1904, the Azusa Street Revival in the United States occurred, which was uh, the more or less the official birth of Pentecostalism in America. In addition to that, in South Africa with Andrew Murray, about the same year, revival came to South Africa. And then it came to uh, other places in the English-speaking world. So God's Spirit was moving uh, all upon the, the English-speaking world. England, Wales, Scotland, uh, South Africa, the United States, uh, basically where the English language was spoken, um, there was a season of great revival. And with that revival came many miraculous occurrences. Uh, movements were born out of that period of time. Among them, the Holiness Movement, uh, the Pentecostal Movement, and the Deeper Life Movement. There's actually a distinction between the three. You can be Holiness and not be Pentecostal. Uh, you can be Holiness and not be Deeper Life. Uh, holiness had to do with uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, a godly life. The Pentecostal movement included the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit and a revival of those gifts and also a fresh outpouring or baptism of the Holy Spirit that was often associated with the giving of particular gifts. We most often associate the gift of tongues with that movement, but in fact, many other um, supernatural gifts were in practice at the same time. The Deeper Life movement uh, often shared uh, parts of both of these uh, different uh, experiences, holiness and Pentecostal, but the deeper life movement had to do with, um, can I use the word, burrowing into Jesus, uh, learning to draw life from his source, learning that he is the one who lives life through us. We don't live it on our own for him, we live it in him as He lives through us to produce His character and His qualities. And so, uh, as a consequence of that, the Christian Missionary Alliance took that particular stance, although many in the Alliance in those days were Pentecostal, and the holiness themes certainly uh, formed kind of an umbrella over the Alliance. Eventually, uh, in the 1920s, uh, there became quite a bit of dispute and debate over whether the gift of tongues was, in fact, the uh, only and primary evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's when Dr. Simpson issued uh, his famous um, statement that was officially adopted, Seek not, forbid not. And that had to do with supernatural sign, gifts, and manifestation. And so as a consequence of that, uh, many Pentecostals left the Alliance. And in fact, our sister organization, the Assemblies of God, uh, 
received a great boon. About a third of our membership uh, moved into the Assemblies of God, and, and we still share a very close affinity and connection with them. But uh, we chose a path that said spiritual gifts are not the proof that the Holy Spirit has uh, filled and baptized an individual. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working among us. In the midst of all of that, healing was perhaps one of the most prominent experiences in a variety of meetings. It was one of the prominent experiences with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And people were seeing dramatic healing and deliverance by the power of God as they would uh, submit in faith to prayer and God would do amazing and wonderful things. And so out of that uh, came uh, a, a, a new focus on the authority that we have as believers in intercessory prayer. And Isaiah 45, 11 uh, became a key verse. And so um, that verse stood out from the King James Version. Ask me concerning things, uh, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. Now, if you take that verse at face value as the King James translates it, what is it saying? It's saying to inquire of God. To ask Him what it is that He is about. What, what is He planning to do? Uh, what does He have in mind for the future? And having discerned that, to command him to do it according to the revelation of his will. Uh, a number of uh, writers uh, chose, I'm skipping around on my outline a little bit here, but um, if you look at uh, letter D under Roman numeral 1, uh, under various commentary, J.A. McMillan, who wrote The Authority of the Believer, The Authority of the Intercessor, wrote concerning Isaiah 45.11, and I'll try to read this on my iPhone, So unreasonable to the natural mind seems the proposition of Jehovah to his people that they should command him concerning the work of his hands that various alternative readings of the passage have been made with the intent of toning down the apparent extravagance of the divine offer. Men are slow to believe that the Almighty really means exactly what He says. They think it a thing incredible that He should share with human hands the throttle of infinite power nor have they the spiritual understanding to comprehend the purpose of the Father to bring those who have been redeemed with the precious blood of His dear Son 
into living and practical cooperation with that son in the administration of his kingdom. J.A. McMillan was a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he was the first person I read about 45 years ago that exposed me to this interpretation of Isaiah 45.11. And it greatly appealed to me, although it puzzled me, uh, for the reasons that are obvious. How can we command God concerning the things that He is going to do? And so, uh, as I begin to dive into this more deeply this week, and, and particularly Friday and Saturday, it was snow day on Friday, and I was uh, home studying Friday and Saturday, I began to search out this verse uh, more uh, significantly. A fellow by the name of Smith Wigglesworth, how would you like to have that name? No one here has it, do you? <laughs> okay, just... Just want to make sure before I uh, get in trouble. Uh, But Smith Wigglesworth was a Pentecostal evangelist, and he also embraced the idea that God was inviting us to search him out and then command him to do what he has revealed his intent happens to be. Both of these men, J.A. McMillan and Smith Wigglesworth, argue for the declarative sense of the word. In other words, they look at these verses and say, these are statements. These are declarations. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. This is declarative. God is giving us an order. He is inviting us to do something which appears to be quite unusual. Now, if you'll notice the New Living Translation, the New International Version, it reads quite differently. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? You see the difference when it's interrogative. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? In other words, God is challenging them in this case. Are you the ones who are telling me what to do? I do as I please. And so there are those who say this is not a commandment. This is, in fact, uh, an interrogative, a question that flows with the passage. So I'd like to read the passage for us and uh, put these verses, this verse in context. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. By the way, Cyrus wasn't born yet. This was a couple hundred years before Cyrus appeared on the scene. Isaiah, uh, by divine 
prophecy is uh, addressing a future king and kingdom. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls you by your name. This is spoken to Cyrus, who isn't born yet. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name and have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And this is where the tone of the passage changes as God shows himself to be uh, the, the potter dealing with the clay, the one in authority who is exercising his own will. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthen vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained their host. I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free. Without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is in a passage where God is challenging those who question his right to do as he pleases with those whom he chooses. Cyrus is a pagan king to come. And yet God is going to use him to send the exiles who went off to Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. 
And with them, he's going to send all the gold and uh, unique vessels and um, intricate symbols that came out of the temple. Uh, He's going to send that back. And he is going to help the Jews reestablish Jerusalem and build up its walls and establish its temple. And it's like, wow, this this is amazing. Whoever heard of such a thing. And so the question, what does verse 11 mean? Is it raising a question? Do you question what I do with my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Or is it an, a, an interrogative or, or a declarative statement? Ask me of things to come. And concerning the work of my hands, command me. The vast majority of Hebrew scholars, evangelical and Jewish, argue for the interrogative. That it fits the paragraph in a logical way where God is saying, Do you challenge me? Do you question my right to be the potter? Do you give me orders? Do you tell me how to do my work? What are you thinking? And they say that in the Hebrew, it makes the most sense if we interpret it in that way. So whenever you encounter something like that, and for me, this was was a very favorite verse that through the years, Uh, I have viewed as an invitation to seek out the Lord and to command Him concerning the work of His hands. The question arises whether or not this verse supports the concept of being bold regarding the work of God. Is it generally true in Scripture? Is it a well-supported principle? J. McMillan goes on to say, the principle involved is set forth in other places of the Word of God in different phraseology it may be, but with equal cogency and clarity. Our duty is to draw near with the boldness of faith and in the attitude and readiness of full obedience. Faith will prove a key to unlock every mystery of the truth. So I want to ask us this morning. I raise Isaiah 45.11. I thought, Perhaps more of you would have been familiar with the arguments surrounding it, but uh, that's okay, now you are. But uh, I raised the question about this verse this morning because it's a fantastic opportunity to talk about the authority of the believer and however it is best translated. The real question is, Does it fit with the whole counsel of God? Does this principle 
become supported by other passages of Scripture, whether or not Isaiah 45.11 supports it. And as I consider that, I want to give you some thoughts from some of the Gospels. Do you remember um, when Jesus was... Are you familiar in John chapter 11 when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is very sick and they want him to come right away? And what does Jesus do? He waits four days. Do you ever feel like that when you pray? You know, you, you, you've, you've made your request, you've expressed to God how urgent it is, and he hangs around and does nothing. And it's like, what's going on here? And so, eventually, he says to his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany, uh, because our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they thought that was a good thing. You know, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll rest and he'll get better. And so Jesus, they were just a little dense in many respects. Jesus says to them, no, Lazarus has died. And now they wonder why they're bothering to go if Lazarus is already dead. But when Jesus gets there... He encounters Mary and Martha, and he asks them to take him to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. And as was often the case in those days, he was buried in a cave above ground. He asks that they roll the stone away, and at this time, the sisters are becoming very concerned because they're saying, it's been four days, he's not going to smell very good. And Jesus is standing in front of this tomb now with the doorway opened up. And he prays this way. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That you always hear me. But so that these may understand that you have sent me. He then addresses the open tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out of there. And to their utter amazement, Lazarus shows up. He is still tied up in the burial garments. And he suggests that they loose him and set him free. And Lazarus is very much alive. This is an amazing miracle. By the way, uh, people always want to come up with an alternate explanation. But there's no way you could be wrapped up in those uh, mummified, uh, perfumed uh, things for four days lying in a cold tomb if you'd been sick and survive uh, under any circumstances. Lazarus had clearly been dead. But the point that I'm making is Jesus had had some conversations with his father before he arrived so that he knew what 
the Father wanted to do. In fact, he had conversations regarding when he should go. And I have no question that it was out of those conversations with the Father that he was told not to go right away. Because there was something else at work here. In John 15.15, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not going to call you servants any longer, because a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I'm going to call you my friends, because I have shared with you everything that the Father has given to me. In other words... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is willing to share with you the things that the Father has given him. As we seek him and pray, he says, I will send you the Holy Spirit. He will bring to your remembrance the things I've said to you. And, and he will teach you. He will guide you. He will give you direction. And you will know and understand what I am about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, I has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, all those things that God has prepared for him. But he has disclosed them to us. In other words, the, the mysteries of the faith, and that's in the context of uh, the, the natural man does not understand or perceive the things of the Spirit. Uh, only one who has the Spirit of God can perceive the things of the Spirit. Uh, there's the, the clear statement that those who have the mind of Christ, those who are uh, full of His Spirit, are in a receptive place where they can receive what God wants to share with them about what He is going to do. And so if you look at how this works out in the lives of the disciples, Peter and John come to the temple and they see a lame man. And he's crying out for alms, and he has been carried there every day, apparently. And uh, as they approach him, he begs them for some coin uh, to sustain him. And Peter says, I'm sorry, I'm flat broke. I don't have a thing to give you uh, in terms of coins, but what I do have, I will give you. In the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And something came over this fellow. And I imagine Peter reaching down his hand to take the lame man's hand and helping him stand. And all of a sudden he stood and began to walk and then to leap. And then to find that his legs had been completely healed, praising God and rejoicing and giving God glory. Because Peter and John, I think in their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, were aware that God wanted to touch that man 
And they had the confidence to believe that he could and would. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I just want to stop here and ask you a question. How many of you experience that kind of consistent answer to your prayer? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But look at the criteria. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now, we could go on at length about the debate between Rhema and Logos, two Greek words that are often translated word or whatever, but Logos normally refers to the written word or the philosophical concept. When John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word, he, he uses the word logos, enarchy, logos. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. But here in John 15, the word is rhema, and rhema most often refers to spoken words. It can be a speech. It can be a oration. It can be just conversation. Uh, Jesus is saying to them, If you abide in me and the things that I have said abide in you. And I believe that the things that Jesus says are larger than just the words of Scripture, I believe that Jesus is willing to give us words and direction concerning how to pray. That as we seek Him, He will give us direction and revelation concerning what to pray for. And in Matthew eighteen eighteen, he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is amazing authority that is given to the disciples. So is the concept valid that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and ask God with confidence to do things that He will most assuredly do. And again, I ask you, how many of us experience that kind of answer to our prayers? How many of you even remember what, what you prayed for last week? How important is it to you? How dominating of your mind and heart is the question 
that you have put before God or the request. Do you see God responding yes when you ask? And the first half of the equation is Come to me, abide in me, hear my words, inquire of me concerning the work of my hands. Talk to me. Let me counsel you. I I forget the fellow's name. If anyone remembers it, you could help me out. It was one of the famous evangelists and prayer warriors. He was asked to pray for a man who was dying. And so he went to the home of the sick person. And as he entered the bedroom where the man lay, he stood for a moment. And then he asked everyone to leave the room. This was sometime in the early part of the evening. And so as everyone left the room, he knelt down beside the man's bed. And hours went by. It was the next morning that he emerged. And he said to the family, God is healing him. He's going to be fine. And they asked the question, Did it take you all that time to pray for his healing? And he said, no. It took me all that time to find out what God wanted to do. Once I knew what God wanted to do, it was a simple matter of asking that it be done. What is the price of being an intercessor? Well, first of all, you've got to spend time in the written Word of God. That's the primary place. You have to spend time in the Scriptures. They have to become a part of your life. You should have a scriptural answer on the tip of your tongue for every question that arises. You should know the Bible so thoroughly that when you are posed with a situation that requires understanding, Scripture comes to mind. Rightly understood, correctly interpreted. That you know what the Word of God says. You need to know the Scriptures that well. You you honestly won't get that ten minutes a day reading. You have to spend time in the Word of God. It has to become a part of the fabric of your life. So that it, it is automatically there when it's needed. The Holy Spirit can pull it up if you put it in. That's an amazing thing that he does. He, he knows how to just pull the right 
verse out. You may not always know the exact reference. You can go look it up. But it will come to mind that there's a passage that addresses this situation. Secondly, we need to learn to discern the voice of God. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And they will not follow anyone else. Do you recognize the voice of God? Not talking about Him talking out loud to you uh, like a schizophrenic whose refrigerator talks to Him. I'm not suggesting that. But God speaks to us in a variety of ways. I finally fell asleep this morning about 5.30. And guess what I was doing? I was dreaming about preaching a sermon. And I was preaching for all it was worth. I I was amazed in my dream. Because I was just burdened with something that I needed to communicate. So I dreamt about preaching. We need to abide in Christ and abide in His Word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish that the Father may be glorified in the Son and that you can bear much fruit. How do you bear fruit? You bear fruit when you see God at work in circumstances that demonstrate His presence. If you can explain something humanly, it probably has a human source. But if God is at work doing something, it will be amazing and remarkable how He does it. Even things that may look normal the so-called accidents of life, the uh, occurrences that just uh, happen, probably don't just happen. God is at work. And we need to learn to wait on God. Waiting is not sitting around twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing. We got to go to work, we got to eat, we got to sleep, we've got other things we've got to do. But waiting on God is an attitude of expectancy that God is going to meet us in the need that we have put before Him. We need to learn to wait before the Lord. Friends, being an intercessor, an effective intercessor, takes time. It takes an intimate communion with the living God. It takes a desire to see God's will done above all other things. It takes a passion for God's work. And once we know what it is that God wants to do, we can come boldly into His presence and say, Lord, 
I claim this in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, part of the problem with that is, particularly in the name it, claim it movement, is that a lot of people claim things they never heard. And particularly the ones that tell you that you can claim wealth and prosperity. Ah, don't be fooled by that. The scripture makes it plain that that's not what this life is all about. God has bigger things he wants to do. One of the things that most often bothers me is that we fail to see dramatic answers to prayer. We do see answers. I'm so grateful for that. We do see answers. But not with the consistency that Jesus offers. Where we can wait in God's presence and find out what He wants to do. And then with authority, ask that it be done. I don't have any silver or gold, but I'll give you what I've got. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. We typically say, Lord, you see this fellow here. You see his need. And we have great empathy if it be your will, if there's any way you could see fit to, to make him better, we'd like to ask you to do that. But if that's not your will, that's okay. We don't want to impose on you anything. And we pray that way because we don't have a clue what God wants to do. We haven't waited in his presence to find out what he wants to do. And so, having cautiously consigned it to whatever he chooses to do, we consider that we have prayed and we go about our business. Weak and ineffectual in intercession. Is God calling you to be an intercessor? It's the hardest work you'll ever do. Is God calling you to be one? It's really the only work we can do. Because without Him, we can do nothing. And so often, that's exactly what we do. Will you be bold prayer warriors, abiding in Him? Father, we ask that You draw our hearts to You. That you teach us how to inquire of you, how to wait before you, how to discern your voice, how to test it in the scriptures, and then how to pray boldly with confidence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.